Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Restoring Grace Radio on blogtalkradio.com. My name is David Fournier, Senior Instructor here at Restoring Grace. Thank you for joining us either live or on archives. Restoring Grace Radio is here to provide online lessons about the Christian faith, our history, our documents, and how to express our faith to a very needy world. Thank you for listening, and now, on to our broadcast. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Zohar in 15. I have a feeling we may go over the 15 minutes. Probably should have waited to the end to tell you that. We're going to talk about a very important subject tonight, and the title is called Revival, Redemption, Resurrection, and Return. <clears throat> Again, that's Revival, Redemption, Resurrection, and Return. Christianity's made a large deal out of revival. Um, there have been revival meetings. There's Holy Ghost meetings. There's um, revival. There's prophetic utterances. There's, they made a, a rather large part of their vernacular surrounds the idea of a revival. But sometimes when people talk about a revival, I'm not always confident they understand what that means and what it would take to do that. And so sometimes the best way to look at that is to look at the origins of what a revival would look like, what redemption looks like. And today we're going to do that. Now, excuse me, fighting off a cold here. Um, the story of the nation of Israel is recorded in the Old Testament documents to instruct us, inspire us, and to be a model for our study and for our interaction with each other in our own community. The story of Israel in the Old Testament is not an isolated community that we simply look back and say, wow, look at all the mistakes they made. It's actually a model for how our community should be working today. Now, when we study a book, uh, uh, books like the Zohar, and, and I'll tell you a little bit about that in just a minute, we're engaging in what's known as rabbinic commentary that spans decades and centuries of dialogue. Now, for some people, they say, oh, rabbinic literature, rabbinic commentary, slow down. And most of you know that pastors and apostles and elders and teachers within the church have written volumes of commentaries, and this is not a strange thing. When we look at the Zohar, it covers about 14 to 1800 years worth of teachings, and these rabbis are having conversations with each other in the Zohar. Again, the Zohar itself does not claim to be a biblical book, a canonical book. It's a commentary. In English, it covers about 23 volumes of commentary on the first five books of the Bible. And we know we don't know everything about the Zohar. We'd like to know like who its author really was. We have some ideas. Rabbi Shimon Bar Yachai has been attributed to it. Um, different volumes of it. We know it was translated into Latin. We know now it's been translated into English, what we'll be reading today. Commentary. It's somebody's idea on this. Now, the rabbis and sages use a system, and they have a lot of systems, guys, but one that's commonly known as Pardis. This means they take each and every verse and each and every story and they look deeply into it for multiple meanings. Now, that acronym, pardon, stands for, number one, Pashat, 
which means surface or straight meaning. So look at something. If Moses went here, Jesus said this, or Peter did these things. That's just a straight meaning. Next is called the nez, which is the hint, the deeper seeking. Well, where were they when they said these things? Or who was the audience they were listening, it was listening and what was meant by it? Number three is dorash, or to inquire or to seek. And sometimes that includes consulting others. I've always wondered, because I know I do it, and mainly because I, I don't think I know everything, but I wonder how many pastors and, and apostles and teachers out there today calling for revival ever call a counterpart and say, hey, here's my lesson for this coming Sunday. I'd like you to listen to it. Pick it apart. Show me where the holes are. Help me work through it. And number four is the word sold, which means the mystery or the secret, the deeper part of it. Now, we're going to talk about revival and how revival actually occurred and how it occurred for Israel. Because we all know Israel had her ups and downs. We're going to be reading from the Zohar, Volume 7, Portion by Eke, Chapter 1. We're going to read verses 15 and verses 18. They're found on pages 10 and 12 of the uh, Zohar, if you have the uh, English version of it. Verse 16. This is the secret of, he has not beheld iniquity in Jacob, nor has he seen perversion in Israel, Numbers 23:21, which means Hashem did not behold the iniquity in Jacob, but did see perverseness. Yet in, yet in Israel, even perverseness he did not behold. For in it, judgment is also considered mercy, he explains. We are thrown into the exile amidst of our enemies, in the midst of our enemies, and the Shekinah, the, the glory, the Holy Spirit, is gone forth from the king and the earthly kingdom, is separated from him. Eventually, he will cause, very important here, he will cause the Holy Spirit, the, she, the Shekinah, to dwell among us and redeem us. For banishment brings us to repent, and repentance brings us to redemption. Therefore, judgment in Israel changes into mercy. And the scripture says, Nor has he seen perverseness in Israel, which is all mercy, but the grave of Jacob is not so, for it contains perverseness. Hence the angel blessed him and said, Your name will no longer be Jacob, but you'll be called Israel, which contains both judgment and mercy, exile and redemption, and is wholly merciful. We'll get to verse 18 in a minute. I want you to think about what you just heard. Now, Numbers 23:21 says that Hashem does not equate, he does not see the iniquities or perverseness of us, but he does call us into accountability. And he does allow periods of exile, being away from him in the midst of our enemies. Purpose of this. Why would we do this? Well, the verse says clearly, this banishment is to bring us to repentance, which is the first step towards towards returning to God. It's interesting to note that when he talks about two things I want to pay attention to, let me back up. God is, in the, is, is a balance of judgment and mercy, exile and redemption. I am not. I am a flawed human being. I'm going to lean heavy on the judgment side, or I'm going to lean heavy on the redemption side, or the exile side, maybe even sometimes the mercy side. I'm a flawed human being. But God is not. He's not human, and he's not flawed. He's the perfect balance of these things. But worth noting in reverse is it's God who sends the Holy Spirit to his people. It is not his people calling down the Holy Spirit to some different kinds of spiritual exercise, yelling and screaming or beating the drums or, or calling down God from heaven. 
You can't call the God down from heaven. That's not how this works. He's already with us. But one thing I want us to really hone in on is what he says here. He says that your name shall be no more called Jacob, but Israel. Finding moment in Jacob's life where who he was and what he was has to transform into who he needs to become and who God wants him to be. And that is a mind-blowing thing to think about. But I want you to think about what I just said, and we're going to say it again. He must transform his consciousness from who he is now into who he, God wants him to be. And how does that transformation take place? That Hashem wants us to grow. Now, we don't often see the low times, the periods of exile, as a time of growth. That we're going through our lowest time points and lowest struggles. God is so close to us in redemption. See, God wants us to grow. But at the same time, he wants us to work for our growth. There's the expression in Kabbalah called the bread of shame. I'll give you, I want to give you a minute to tell you what that means. What the bread of shame is about is people who get things for free, people who get things too quickly, people who don't earn it. There's a famous story that I was told, and it was really it was interesting when I heard it the first time, but it's a story about a young man who is getting ready to pitch. He's in elementary school, and he's in the, uh, playing Little League, and he's getting ready to pitch the championship game. And he's nervous the night before, and he talks to his dad. <coughs> and his dad says, you're going to do fine. Just get out there and give it your best. He calls Grandpa on the phone. Are you coming to the game? Yeah, I'm going to be there. And the day comes, and he gets up, and he goes to this game, and he's, he's throwing strikes and striking people out and grounding people, and they score a run, but he recovers back from it, and he's doing so great, and he really winds up really close, and in the end he gets a hit that helps his team win, and they win like four to two. And that afternoon they're celebrating their championship. They're at a little pizza place because, you know, that's where baseball players go after they play games and go to pizza places. And at the pizza place, and he's looking around for his dad because he wants to thank his dad for all the extra time that he spent playing catch with him and coaching him and working him through these things. He sees his dad on his cell phone, so he doesn't want to bother him, so he just kind of gets close enough to be able to catch him, and he hears his dad. His dad's on the phone with the coach of the other team, and he hears his dad saying, hey, listen, thank you for getting those guys to strike out like that, and I hope that was enough money. And Basically, what he finds out is his dad set the whole thing up so there was no way he could lose. Now, let me ask you. What do you think that child, that boy, was thinking at that moment when he found that out? What do you think his consciousness was? He went from being the next pitcher in the Game 7 of the World Series to a guy who participated in a tremendous fraud, and the joke was on him. That's the British shame. That's the British shame. It would be like getting a golf club that every time you hit a ball, it's a hole one. It would be fun at first. But after two or three games or two or three weekends or two or three months, who'd want to play with you? You wouldn't want to play anymore because it comes to you automatically. You don't have to work for it. That's what the exile is about. When people are chanting and screaming and preaching about a revival, they are not at the same time explaining what that really means. It means to be held under a higher level of accountability, mercifully, Hashem says, and that being put in that place of banishment, that place of exile, to work through it, 
and to work our way out of that to the place of redemption and reconciliation back with God. But that's not going to happen by staying the way we're staying right now. You can go to church on Sunday and play all the games you want, say all the things you want, do all the things you want, worship any way you want, call down the fire from heaven if you please, all the hooping and yelling and screaming that you want. But here's the fact. Everybody wants the light. Nobody wants to fight. Everybody wants to win, but nobody wants to fight. Nobody wants to admit that you have got to reach deep and understand that to get to that moment of revival, we have to get to that moment of exile. We often think of God like he is in the, he's just waiting to catch us in the act of doing something wrong. But he says he's watching us to catch us in the act of doing something right. Let me read verse 18. Come and see the verse. Oh, house of Jacob, come. Let us walk in the light of Shem. Which means that the letters, including the exile, they were sentenced to for their sins. According to truth and justice, there's a remedy within the Torah, the scriptures. And if you keep it, you should come out of the filth and mud, which is exile, and walk by the light of Hashem, which is resurrection and redemption. Since the exile caused the return to Torah, which leads to the redemption, so we find both of the divisions connected. Many people talk. Many people talk in their churches. They preach, they sing, they predict a revival in their lives and in their churches. But the problem is that revival has become a cheap word. No longer with a deep meaning. Just a word to get people to gather on nights other than Sunday. Because folks, revival is not caused by the result of wanting something new or better in our spirituality. It is a result of emerging from an exile wilderness experience. It's a result of looking at our lives and realizing there needs to be a change. And being willing to be the agent in that change, not being afraid. And being able to say something's wrong, it's got to change. And I want to give you this to think about. Be careful what you ask God for because I believe that people are playing with fire in their spiritual lives. And I want you to know what it says. Revival. Begins the road to redemption. And it starts with walking in the light of the Shem. The issue with that And again, like I said, everybody's all about the light. Nobody wants to fight. The issue with walking the light is the exposure level. You're going to see yourself. I'm going to see myself. We will see ourselves as we really are. You ever notice, like, the other day I had a big scratch on the door of my truck. This is totally embarrassing. I smacked the gate and told I don't want to get into it. It's embarrassing. And there's a big scratch on my truck. And I came out. Later that afternoon, it's like 7 o'clock, it's overcast. I look, at, eh, it's not that bad. It's kind of embarrassing, a big scratch on my door. But, nah, you know, it's going to be okay. Next morning, I get up to go to work. I drive into work. The sun is out. The birds are chirping. I park in the parking lot. I get out to go look at it again. And it looks like it's nine miles long and, like, nine miles wide. Like, I'm looking at the scratch. Like, I'm amazed that my door survived. I didn't rip my entire door off. Well, what was the difference? The difference was the amount of light. And how light exposes things. It gives you a clear look. It's like the kid that walks into his dad and says, Dad, can you read the dark? And, of course, Dad, oh, yeah, I can do that. He said, good, turn off the light. I want you to read my report card. But once that light comes on and we see that report card for what it really is, we realize we have a problem. So the issue with walking in the light and the reason why everyone's about the light, 
but nobody wants to fight. Everybody's about the revival, but nobody's about the exile. Is because it brings our issues to the surface. Now, the rabbis and sages all seem to agree that exile starts with the rejection of the Torah. And this is an ongoing theme throughout the Sohar. It's an ongoing theme throughout Judaism. Breaking the commandments and laws of God. You say, oh, hey, I'm a Christian. I don't have to do that. You got a New Testament you got to contend with. And there is about 1,100 commands in the New Testament. It starts with that rejection of it. When we start thinking that we're smarter than God, smarter than his word, smarter than the things that he has given us to do, when that happens, we begin to reject what God has given to us. And that, I believe that a lot of exiles that occur in people's spiritual lives are not so much the result of some group of people rounding up people, dragging them off into exile. I believe it's like these journeys of self-discovery, finding my inner voice. Those are great things, unless they're leading you away from the path of Hashem. But by returning to Torah, returning to the Scriptures, returning to the laws of God, the exile ends and redemption can begin. But it's an interesting note there that the, that the writers put in its place where it talked about resurrection. Now, in order for something to resurrect, it must die. Well, who died? Now, for many people, you'll say, but they're not talking about that. They're talking about a group of people who turned their back on the ways of God, who ignored Torah, who ignored the Scripture. They found themselves in exile, in captivity, and banished from the light, banished from the glory of God. And now they turn their eyes back to Torah, back to Scriptures, back to the light, and they're heading back, and they're going through the period of redemption, and then comes this term, resurrection. I want you to listen carefully. Spiritual death can happen several times during our lifetime. Spiritual death can happen several times during our lifetimes. Who died? We died. When the Apostle Paul speaks of being dead in our transgressions and sins, he is simply pointing back towards the teachings of the rabbis and sages on this matter. That we can actually die and need to be resurrected. I'm not talking about somebody who gets saved and later says they need to be saved again. And I'm talking about in our personal lives. Because let's be honest, I can tell you in my life that there are times where I'm so far disconnected, far out of touch with the reality of what God's trying to get done in my life and the lives of the people around me. I just don't want to talk to him anymore. I just want to hide. I just want to be away, go away. Where do I want to be? I want to be in exile. I want to be in exile. And if you've ever read a non-canonical book called The Hymn of the Great Pearl, great story. The young man has an awakening, a resurrection. He wakes to the fact of who he is. He's the son of the king. He needs to return. Keeping the commands of Torah, by keeping the commands of scriptures, by keeping the commands of the New Testament document, we come out of the filth and the mud. And the covering of this, of this world, this filth and mud, they cover the light that's within each and every one of us. It gives each and every one of us the opportunity to do something, be something, incorporate our life into something really great for God. Everybody wants revival. Path to revival, the path to redemption, the path to resurrection, the path to the return is the exile. 
and having to turn back from that exile to follow the commands of God and head right into the light. Into that light where the highest level of exposure will be there and we will see ourselves as we really are. My prayer that we'll have that kind of courage in our life. My name is David Fournier, Senior Instructor here at Restoring Grace, and thank you for joining me on this edition of the Zohar Institute.